Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. We're continuing our series in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. If uh, you're new to the Bible or if you didn't bring a Bible with you, just Google it on your phone, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Uh, we're continuing this series in the book of Col- Colossians, talking about Jesus at the center. And this morning is going to kind of be a continuation of Pastor Derek's message from last week. And so you'll want to check that out if you haven't already. Um, and yet I hope to make the connection uh, kind of uh, seamless as we move into verses 12 through 17. And so when you've got Colossians chapter 3, would you shout, I got it. it. Would you do me a favor and rest on your feet if you're able as we read the scripture together. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Very words of scripture. Amen. You may be seated. Those who knew her called her Garbage Mary. They called her that because what she would do all day long is scourge around dumpsters and pick out uh, food and uh, items from dumpsters. And she would take those items back to her two-bedroom apartment. And if you were to go into her two-bedroom apartment, uh, what you would see, including in her car, is you would see garbage everywhere. As a matter of fact, there, there was garbage so many different places that there was no place to sit. If you were to look in her cabinets, it was just garbage. If you were to go into the bathroom, you could not take a bath or a shower because the tub was filled with garbage. Every single portion of her house was filled with garbage. She would eventually be picked up in Delray Beach, Florida by the police one day who thought that maybe her mind had faded away, this, this woman who was living in garbage. But interestingly enough, when they looked into her life, they found something fascinating about her. Uh, her father had been a successful banker and left her an incredible inheritance. Uh, she had passbooks for eight large bank accounts. She had mobile stock worth more than $400,000, and she had eight large bank accounts Uh, With stock in major companies, she owned oil fields throughout Kansas. You see, this lady who uh, stored her home with garbage was actually a multimillionaire. You see, 
There was this amazing life uh, in front of Garbage Mary that that she could uh, take hold of. I mean, it, it was hers, but she didn't know how to appropriate it into real life. Instead, she kept going back to what she was used to. She, uh, she kept going back to collecting garbage. She kept going back to, uh, to looking through garbage cans and bringing it to her home and storing it in her home. She had this incredible life that she could have, and yet she kept going back to what she was familiar with. As we get ready to come to our passage this morning, and as a word to the church in Colossae and a word to you and I, I believe that many of us, oftentimes, when it comes to becoming a follower of Jesus, whether or not uh, you did that 20 years ago or whether or not you did that yesterday, we have uh, the proclivity in us to uh, not appropriate the life that God has established for us, the inheritance and uh, the belonging and uh, the acceptance that God has established for us through Christ, and we tend to be like garbage Mary. We go back to what we're familiar with. We go back to collecting garbage. And as we come to our text, the Apostle Paul says to put off that old life. As a matter of fact, uh, as Pastor Derek said last week, he says, put it to death. But then he says, put on your new life and live like you've been made new. Stop living like garbage Mary and live in light of your new life. So Paul says, since uh, you are uh, made new, you need a new set of clothes, new wardrobe. You've been made new. It brings with it a new way to live. You see, if, if you have been made new, whether it was 20 years ago or five minutes ago, you can't wear those same old clothes. Paul says there's some stuff you got to put off. And there's some stuff you got to put on. And I want to preach from that subject this morning. I, I want to preach from the subject, a new life brings with it a new way to live. A new life brings with it a new way to live, or said a different way, a new life, a new way, a new life, a new way. This is going to kind of be our table of contents for our time together this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is, uh, are the clothes of the new life, then we're going to look at the anchor of the new life, and lastly, we're going to look at the guide of the new life, the clothes of the new life, the anchor of the new life, the guide of the new life, uh, a new life brings with it a new way to live. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. Thank you, God, as we have gathered together here for the opportunity to worship together, to sing together, to give in response to your generosity towards us. And now I pray as we get ready to open up your word that you would open up our eyes to see magnificent things that are in it. And Holy Spirit, would we not just see the things that are in your word, but would we be changed by the things that we see? Holy Spirit, it is to that end that I am available to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 
A new life brings with it a new way to live. First, it brings with it a new set of clothes, the clothes of the new life. As we get ready to come to our passage this morning in Colossians chapter 12, it's important to be reminded of where we have been or where we have come from or the, uh, the context around our particular passage. In the previous paragraph, Paul says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And something uh, that is intrinsically important to us as a congregation is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 in verse 11. Will you look at it with me? He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul here is not saying, uh, he's not saying, Pastor Derek, that you stopped being black when you became a follower of Jesus. Uh, he, uh, he is simply saying that, that your faith in Jesus, your union with Christ, that identity supersedes your black identity. Uh, the, uh, the, essentially what he's saying in verse 11 is that you didn't stop being Asian, you're still Asian. You, you didn't stop being white, you're still white. But your primary identifier is your faith in Christ. But not only does he say that, the, the interesting thing that, that I think that uh, the Apostle Paul is pointing to uh, is that not only uh, does our identity change in terms of our primary identifier, but also he's saying not that everybody is the same, hear that, but everybody is equal under the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You didn't stop being a woman when you became a follower of Jesus. You're still a woman. But you're equal to everybody else within the kingdom of God. Everybody is seen as firstborn children of God. Now, I want to present to you a couple of things that I'm convinced the Bible teaches or assumes, and some of it you may, uh, may have never heard in a church before. And I don't say that to say I've got some special information, but I say it uh, as somebody who values something that I see very clearly in the Scripture. As the Apostle Paul picks up the pen to write verse 11, he is assuming that people who live in a diverse metropolitan area are in a, a church that's representative of that diverse uh, metropolitan area, i.e., the Bible teaches and or assumes diversity. Now, I, I know, I, I know uh, to, to, when you look at the history of, of, of uh, the American church and you look at the history of uh, the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church and how it got started by uh, wanting to exclude black people from their worship, and, and we look at the history of all of what the black church has meant to the uh, African American community over the course of history, what we have to remember is that the reason why there's a black church is because black people were excluded from worshiping there. And in essence, that is against what the Apostle Paul is saying ought to be assumed in the local community of faith. 
But not only does the Bible assume diversity, but the Bible assumes Christians are committed to doing life within a local community of faith. How do you say that, Pastor Steve? How do you say it? All of what the Apostle Paul is going to call us to from verses 12 through 17 assumes that you're doing life with other people. All the 59 one another passages of the scripture assumes that you're doing life within a local community of faith. In other words, the Bible does not know a Christian who's not a part of a local community of faith. You understand what I'm saying? A committed person who's a part of a local community of faith. Literally, you can't interpret the Bible rightly. You can't understand the Bible rightly apart from being a part of a local community of faith. Now, I know some of my Moody, my Bible, Moody Bible Institute students, y'all are here, and you kind of duck in and duck out of church, and you got your community at school. But what I want to tell you as you study the Bible is that the Bible assumes that you are a part of a local community of faith. And I know I got those Christians who are in the room. That I got my own thing with Jesus. I watch Mike Todd online, and I got my own thing with Jesus. Or I, I watch so-and-so at, what's the church at, other church in Oklahoma, the big church? Uh, what is it? Y'all know, y'all be watching. Life Church, Life Church, or I watch Life Church online at home, and I realize we've been in a pandemic, a global pandemic, and yet and still, what I've been hearing from psychologists and psychiatrists is that the secondary community outside of your family is vital to your mental and emotional well-being. In other words your ability to flourish as a human being. God already knew that. So he says, be a part of a local community of faith. That was for free. Let's look at verse 12. <laughs> In this diverse community, here's how you put on this new life. Look with me at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, Pastor Derek uh, talked a lot uh, about last week. He, he said your identity is not your activity, or your activity is not your identity. Our, our identity is now in Christ, or as Paul said earlier in the book of Colossians, the mystery hidden for ages and generations is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, uh, and we've been discussing over the past several weeks uh, what that makes, uh, what, what that means, and, and what, what that is in order to appropriate that to our lives. What makes us acceptable to God has nothing to do with our performance but it has all to do with the gift of grace through Christ's performance. That, that is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other major religion. What makes us acceptable to God is not our performance, but it's Christ's performance. And through faith, clinging to the grace that was provided to us through the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we are united to Jesus. He is in us and we are in him. That, that's, that's the only way that you and I have a relationship with God. But not only does it give us relationship with God, not only are we declared right with God, but we become literally children of God. 
What God the Father says over you and me is exactly what he says over his own son. This is my beloved child upon whom my favor rests. We have become, as Romans 8 says, co-heirs with Christ. And you say, Pastor Steve, are you serious? I'm serious. That's what the Bible teaches. Based on nothing you accomplished, he chooses to place his grace on you. And then we respond out of love to that grace, having received not just declared righteousness, but sonship and adoption. That's why the passage, before it says anything else, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Put on, I I choose you, Jay. I choose you, Tamara. I I choose you. I choose you, Sean. That's what God the Father says over you and me in Christ. I choose you. You're secure. That, that That is how secure you are. I have chosen you. You are holy, not because you're holy, but because I have declared you holy, because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and you are, as the text says, as God's chosen, holy and beloved. How he sees his son is how he sees you, by grace through faith. Now, these aren't mystical platitudes. or su- Paul isn't being super spiritual in verse 12 at the very beginning. This is your identity. Paul says that God says over you and I, I choose you. You are my beloved. You are holy in my sight. Before he calls us to do anything, he says this is your new, new identity. And it's now from that place that you and I are given the ability to do the rest of verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, uh, put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put on, uh, put on compassionate hearts. Put on, put on compassionate hearts. Let me, put on, well, let me put on my compassionate heart. I got a new, new life, a new set of clothes got to go with this new life. And, and so uh, th- this idea of, of the compassionate heart, it, it literally means, it, it translates to the, from the phrase, from the bowels of mercy. From, from the bowels of mercy. It's the same idea when Jesus saw uh, the crowds and the Bible says that he had compassion on them. It's, it's from the very center of who he is uh, that he says, I've got to do something about their situation. That, that's the idea of, uh, of Jesus' compassion. As, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in commenting on, on mercy, this bowels of mercy concept, uh, it, he says this. He says, mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. That is the essential meaning of being merciful. It is pity plus action. The concern about people's misery leads to an anxiety to relieve it. From the very centerpiece of who Jesus is, says, I have got to do something about their situation. I have got to relieve their misery. It, it, is, it is to, from, uh, from your inner being, to rush to relieve the misery that sin has caused someone else. Now, imagine if a whole community of people rushed to relieve one another's misery. That would be a community that, that flourishes. He says, put on, he says, put on, put on humility, put on humility, put on humility, put on humility. All right, I put on, uh, put on humility. And the text says, uh, he says, 
as you are a beloved child of God, if, as that is your identity, then you're not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm a, I know exactly who I am. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I'm a son. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a daughter. I don't think anything less of myself. I, I know exactly who I am. But now I don't have to posture and name drop. Now I don't have to present all my accomplishments to think that somebody will want to hear that and accept me. And yet because I know exactly who I am, I'm able to lift others up. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus does. In Philippians chapter 2, he was in the exact nature as God, but refused to uh, take that nature as something to be grasped or snatched at. But instead, he went to the cross. He laid down his rights for the benefit of others. Put on humility. Imagine a community of people who rushed to humility. Nobody would feel left out. Nobody uh, would feel less than. Every, everyone would feel valued. But what else? Verse 13. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Now, now we can't get into all of these and forgiveness uh, probably needs its own message. But, but let's talk about it for just a bit. Let's put on, let's put on forgiveness. Let's put on Let's put on forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those difficult ones. You ever, you ever heard somebody say, well, I can't forgive that. That's unforgivable. That, that's not something I'm going to get over anytime soon, right? And yet what, what I want to suggest is, is that we actually look at this backwards real fast and see it through the lens of what we've been talking about the past several weeks. This, this idea of, of forgiveness in light of the gospel. If, if you look at your life and your own mess as just kind of like you missed the mark and Jesus gave you a, a lift in the right direction, he kind of just helped you get to the right spot, then if we're honest, if that's the way that we view what Jesus has done for us, then it'll be really difficult to forgive people because we'll never see what we've done as anything remotely close to what they've done to us. And yet, oh, so if I, I used to play ball uh, back in the day and, and I always tease Pastor Derek because he played uh, football at IU and yet in the seventh grade, we went undefeated. 7-0, and let them know. That's what we used to say. And Pastor Derek didn't play on the football team. I'm just saying I'm still trying to believe he was a real football player. I'm, I'm still, I know he could play basketball. I knew that for sure. I'm still confused on the football thing. Anyways, at my high school, they had the, the big boards. I don't know if y'all had the big boards in the weightlifting uh, room. Uh, they had these boards, and they would have the school record holder uh, for, for on, on those boards. And I actually was on a couple of those boards. I was proud to be actually for the 40-yard dash. I know, I know some of y'all look at me, and you're like, yeah, Pastor, you, that's a long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a long time ago, Jay, but I'm going to tell you, I was, on, I was like 9 or 10, but I was on that board, and I was proud to be on that board. 
But, but here's the thing. There's all these names on the board, and when you're weightlifting, uh, especially when you're taking it seriously, usually you have a spotter there, right? You have somebody, if you're on the bench press and you, you got something heavy on there, and, and, and you're not totally sure if when you get to the last rep, right, you're going to be able to, to, like, you don't want to hit yourself in the head or something with, with the bar, right? So you have a spotter there, and the spotter kind of, kind of, all right, you got it down, you, you got it up about halfway, and, and you just need the spotter there to kind of, uh, kind of tilt the bar in the right direction, kind of give you a, a little tap, a little tap to the bar. And I think sometimes we look at what Jesus did for us and we see the excruciating nature of the crucifixion and we say, man, that's really hard. But I just needed a spotter. I, I, my, my life is pretty, pretty good. Like, I, I'm going to get the bar down, and I got it halfway up, and thank God Jesus is the spotter that helps me tap up the bar. Thank God for Jesus being my divine spotter, right? But hear this. Jesus is no divine spotter. You didn't need a spot. You needed somebody to sit down and lift the weight for you. Jesus is the power lifter who lifts the weight and then puts your name on the board without you ever having to do anything. But if you look at your life as somebody who just needed a spot, everybody else's mess is always going to be worse than mine. But if you realize, literally, as a human being made in the image of God, I regularly build my life on things other than God or things that he created. I look for lasting satisfaction, comfort, joy, and peace in my vocation, in the things that I wear, in the car that I drive, in the home with the finishes that it has, in the place that I live. Or, man, maybe if I move to that city, then I'll really be happy because you're looking for lasting satisfaction, comfort, joy, and peace in things God created. That's offensive. And God is, not, not only is it offensive, but God is holy. But when I see my mess, my rebellion against God, for what it actually is. He ain't no divine spotter. He lifted the weight and put me on the board. That's crazy. Somebody, you say that's scandalous. Yeah, it's the scandal of the gospel. Then when somebody has done something against me, I can forgive you. I'm not saying it's going to be tomorrow. Some of us are traumatized by things that other people have done to us. We got to work through some stuff on it. And yet and still, if that is the posture of my heart, to see my mess for what it actually is, at least the posture of my heart will be towards forgiveness. Because somebody else has forgiven me of something incredibly great. Put on, put on forgiveness. And then, and then he goes on to say, put on love as it sort of encapsulates all of these new clothes. And, uh, and see, the thing that this reminds me of 
It reminds me of the fact that a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. You do all the right stuff, and you look at the person who, man, they constantly, they constantly, they back at, they back at rehab. They, they foreclosed on that house again. You back with that same old scrub boyfriend. You overdrew the account again. You asking for help again. And now I'm comparing and contrasting. <laughs> if you lifted the weight and put your name on the board, the nature of my heart is towards humility. I ain't no, your message ain't no greater than mine. And that's the way people should experience Christians. And yet, sadly, that's not the way that they experience many Christians. It says put on, and, 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 and here's the other thing. In the kingdom of God, as we interact with one another, ain't, none of y'all should be petty-patty. Ain't something that's a part of the kingdom of God. Petty-eddy. Y'all petty-eddy. I just can't get over that. that. That's not a part of the characteristics of, of, of the kingdom. That's not a part of the new clothes that God calls us to put on. And so we've got to do what Pastor Derek talked about last. We've got to put that petty stuff to death. We've got to put that prideful stuff to death. Those are the, those are the clothes of the new life. But let's look, at the, let's look at the anchor of the new life. Look with me at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in which you were called, indeed you were called, in one body and be thankful. The idea of letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts is the idea uh, of allowing it to control your heart. It is, uh, it is to let the peace of Christ be the decisive factor. It is, it is to make peace the arbiter. Like at the end of the day, regardless of, uh, of my competing preferences and the ideas of what I, I want and my interests, my main goal is peace. And some of us think of peace as the absence of conflict. And yet the reality is, is that the idea of biblical peace is not the absence of conflict. It's actually the idea of someone who steps into conflict and makes things whole. So the Hebrew word shalom for peace, it literally means wholeness. And so the idea of allowing peace to rule your hearts or the peace of Christ is this idea of allow the wholeness that God has achieved for you, the freedom, the security that God has achieved for you to rule your heart so that when you're in conflict with somebody else, the end goal is peace. The end goal is, is shalom. It's, 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 it's wholeness. You know, God reconciled us Back to himself, there was conflict between us and God, but Jesus made peace through his sacrifice. He made us whole. He reconciled us to God, but also he makes us whole people. Now, on this side of being in Jesus, I become exactly who I was intended to be. Y'all know the story of Horatio Spafford? Ever heard that name? 
He's the hymn writer uh, who actually was a lawyer who wrote the hymn, It Is Well. It is well, I won't sing. It is well, it is well with my soul. He sang that song. He wrote the words to that song after his wife and four daughters drowned on a ship on its way to Europe in the Atlantic Ocean. How could a person write the words, it is well with my soul, after they've lost everything that's important to them? Because in Christ, there's something about the deepest longing of our souls that contradicts the circumstances that we find ourselves in in life. Many of you know that my mother passed away two and a half years ago. And uh, if I'm honest with myself, uh, I believe that I have been depressed for two years. Uh, she had a stroke, and then over the course of that year, um, just passed away unexpectedly at home uh, on her way back to recovery after about nine or ten months. And I, I had all this, this time of navigating the uh, insurance uh, department, which if you work for insurance department in Chicago, God bless you. Uh, but anyways, I was navigating all the details of, of uh, health insurance and hospitals and in and out of skilled nursing facility and trying to get care at home and, and nurses to come in at home. And I was just exhausted. And at the end of being exhausted and making the decision that she was going to go back in the skilled nursing facility, then we found out that her insurance didn't have any more skilled nursing days for the year left on it. And so I, I just didn't know what to do. And I left for church one morning. The nurse was going to come and check on her. And when I came back, she was gone, completely unexpected. And I believe that I've been depressed for two years. And I think it was really hard for me to acknowledge that I had felt depressed for two years because two, the two of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life happened. I, I got married to my wife and I had my son uh, all within that same time period. And so it was hard for me to acknowledge Man, I'm, I'm depressed. It was hard for me to just, like, be okay with knowing that that's the case. And uh, I'll never forget, as, as we got ready for her funeral, uh, I, I wanted to be able to say what I wanted to say about my mom. And so I was still able to preach the funeral. Uh, that was all, probably all the energy that I, that I had uh, to, that I could give was to preach that funeral. And, and yet I wanted to be able to say what I wanted to say uh, about my mom. And I'll never forget uh, Pastor Charlie Dates, who passes a church uh, here in the city, just south of White Sox Stadium, Progressive Baptist Church, uh, has, has always kind of been a, uh, a big brother, uncle, uh, speaking into my life uh, from time to time. Uh, he called me and uh, he said, I, I have this passage of scripture that's in my spirit for you, and I, I want to read it to you, and I don't know if it'll help you out or not, but I just feel like I, I need to share it with you. And it's Genesis 24 and verse 67. He knew that my wife and I had uh, gotten engaged, um, and yet this was the passage that he, he shared with me, and the words will come up on the screen. 
He said, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. This is the, the marriage of Sarah and Rebekah. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And along the journey of those nine, ten months, there were always, everything was always really difficult, but then there were always glimpses of God's grace. Always a little picture through a nurse that knew Jesus or mainly through the community of faith that I was, that I was a part of. And in, in the process of, of all of these different things, and, the, and then it, it, he read that passage to me and it was like another from the spirit. I got you, Steve. I got you. And I, I remember standing up to, to preach that, that funeral and all I could think of was 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and 8. And I, I don't even think I could... Uh, you know, I didn't have it memorized or anything, but I knew parts of it was like, that's exactly how I feel. So I went and read it and I was like, this is, this is it. And, and the, the verse goes like this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking of, uh, of our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I felt like I was pressed to the ground as hard as I possibly could. And yet I wasn't crushed and I could not explain it. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. I knew God was still present. Struck down but not destroyed. I felt like I knew I should be destroyed. I said to my mother... My therapist told me to go to my mother's grave, and I was kind of avoiding it the whole first year. And I said to her, he said, I want you to just speak from your heart to your mother at her grave. And I said uh, to her, I said, what is life without you? You're everything that was good about life. You are life itself. It was not premeditated. It was just what instantaneously came to me. I was pressed down. But I still wasn't crushed and I couldn't understand why. Depressed for two years. But I still wasn't destroyed. I talked to friends who have lost loved ones and parents during the pandemic. And they're destroyed. They're crushed. I try to encourage in whatever way that I can. And I recognize that the only reason why I'm not destroyed, the only reason why I'm not crushed, because Christ is in me and I am in Christ. It says, let the peace of Christ, the wholeness that you have been given, let it control you. Let it, let it rule your heart. There's a Christian psychiatrist who's written a number of really good books. His name is Kurt Thompson. He wrote a book called The Soul of Shame. I highly rec recommend that one. 
Uh, but he talks about the different things that every human being has a longing or desire for. Just at the foundational level, at the base level, and the words will come up on the screen. He says, human beings have a desire to be seen and known deeply and authentically. To be accepted and soothed by God and others for who we really are. Fallen yet beloved people saved by grace. To be safe knowing that God and others love us and do not seek to harm us and instead want the best for us. To be seen and known deeply. I knew after my mother passed away that all these things were true of me in Christ. They had nothing to do with my grief. I, I felt my mother's loss. Her, her death had nothing to do with peace. But her death revealed peace. Because the deepest longing, regardless of whether or not you are a follower of Jesus in this room today, your deepest longing is to be accepted, to belong, to be loved, to be secure. That's what makes us whole. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. You've been made, no, made whole. You can say it is well with my soul because the deepest longing of the human experience has been met in Christ. We just miss it sometimes. That's the anchor. The anchor of the new life is the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. As we round third and head for home, let's look at the guide of the new life. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we've seen the close of the new life, the anchor of the new life, the guide of the new life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, when you first glance at this passage, you may think that Paul is simply saying, read the Bible a lot. Uh, but there's an incredibly... Uh, richer meaning to what he's actually saying. It means way more than that. We, we have to keep in mind that Colossians is written to a church, so he's probably speaking specifically of a kind of worship gathering, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another. So it's this idea of Paul being very specific that the worship gathering should be focused on the word of Christ. And I think uh, we have to keep in mind, as, as Colossians is written to, to a church, that this is maybe a part of a worship gathering, but at the same time that uh, it's, it's, it points to something that is very unique to Christianity, very unique to Jesus, something he says about himself. You see, he doesn't say, let the word of the Lord, or he doesn't say, let the scriptures dwell in you richly. He says, let the word of Christ. Jesus says in John 5 and verse 8, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Speaking to the religious leaders of the time. 
These are the very scriptures that testify about me. He's saying that the scriptures were always pointing forward to him. The scripture's point is Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, Jesus, or God, the Father sets the people of Israel free before he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. Grace always precedes law, but we miss it when we don't realize that the scriptures are always pointing to Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Everything in the Bible that had been written up until that time, he says, points to, is about himself. It's all about Christ. Talk about keeping Jesus at the center. Now, one of the reasons why I think this is so important to make this distinction is because of something that we talked about a few weeks ago. Grace is such a foreign concept to our lived experience that we often will, will read our lived experience into the scriptures. Pastor Steve, what do you mean by that? I mean that everything in our lives, whether it be at work or with our parents or with, uh, with our, our uh, co-workers or with our uh, boyfriend and, and Lord willing, if you become a follower of Jesus, think these things will change over time. But, or, or with school, performance to gain acceptance. Performance, gain acceptance. Do good, get promotion. Do good, get a scholarship. Yada, yada, yada. Go on and on. And we said that this idea of performance to gain acceptance when it comes to spiritual things is the idea of legalism. You perform, you gain acceptance. You do what's right, God answers prayers. You do what's right, God is kind of this genie in, in the bottle that he's going to give you what, you what you ask for at the end of it. And the thing about that is, I know that's your lived experience, but that's not Christianity. And we said that legalism is like, to us, what, what water is to a fish, Perform to gain acceptance. Perform to gain, that's what we know. It, it's, it's the air that we breathe. And so what the Apostle Paul is communicating here is that because that's the air that you breathe over and over and over and over again, you've got to allow the gospel of grace to be rehearsed to your soul over and over and over again because you don't get it. Your heart naturally wants something else. Your heart wants legalism. You want to check off the boxes. You want to keep the rules. And God says, no, you, you couldn't keep the rules. That's why I lifted the weight and put your name on the board. Now, after I lift the weight and put your name on the board, now live out of delight instead of duty. Live in response to my love instead of for my love. And so, in essence, what the Apostle Paul says here is uh, to rehearse the gospel of grace to your hearts because it's a foreign concept to your lived experience. Uh, and then he even shows us ways of how. So teaching and admonishing one another in, in another 
one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teach it and sing it, he says. When we gather together and, and Damon and Julian and the team uh, lead us in worship, we're rehearsing that to ourselves. That, that's why the routine of actually gathering together is so incredibly important to teach it and to sing it. That's why it's important to be a part of a local community of faith with other people, to teach it and to sing it together with one another, to rehearse it to your soul together. And then we take part in communion together and we rehearse it through that means. And then we watched at Easter, people get baptized and we experienced it through that means. We're rehearsing it together as a community of faith. You rehearse it when you get up tomorrow morning before your children and you read your devotional. You're, you're rehearsing it when you gather together for small group, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You're, you're rehearsing it uh, to yourself when uh, you, you don't have time to, uh, to jump into the Word. So, so you say, I'm going to put this Maverick City on before I, before I do anything. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing some stuff to God. When you go to the gym and you say, you know what, I, I got I to gotta rehearse some stuff. Instead of watching Sports Center or First Take or whatever, I, I'm listening to a, a podcast uh, uh, about Jesus. I, I got to rehearse it to myself because I, it's such a foreign concept to me. I got to write this. I got to write this verse on, on a passage. I, I, I want to be like Philippians 3, 9, having not a, a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith. I, I want to be a, a person who recognizes and understands that by faith, I'm a co-heir with Christ. When I write on that three by five card and I put it on the mirror in the bathroom, or I put that three by five card in my purse or in my back pocket and I, I carry it with me and put it out when I'm not doing nothing in the day and, and rehearse it to my soul. Because the other thing is what water is to a fish. I got to have it constantly rehearsing in my heart and in my soul. And you say, Pastor Steve, that's a whole lot of stuff to be doing, man. I don't know if I can do all of that. I don't know if I can put on the compassionate heart. I don't know if I can be uh, all that humble like that. I've still got some petty patty in me, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if I can allow the, I got a busy, busy work schedule. I don't know if I can uh, allow uh, the word of Christ to dwell in me richly. I don't know if I can do all of those things perfectly. You're right. You can't. But hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these expressions and examples are exactly the character of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the good news message of Jesus is that because he did all of those things perfectly, lived and sacrificed himself for you and rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death through faith in him, he now empowers and enables you through his spirit to do these things. And ultimately, he calls you and me to be who you are. These are the heavenly things in, Col in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Rehearse them to your soul. And because Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. You have it already. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. We thank you, God. 
for your peace that I know by personal experience surpasses understanding. It doesn't take the grief away. It doesn't take the depression away. It may not take the anxiety away. And yet there's something in me that knows I'm whole. I'm seen by you. I'm accepted by you. I'm secure in you. I belong. Help us, God, as a community of faith. None of these things make any sense in isolation. You can't put on humility in isolation. You can't forgive one another in isolation. I pray for that person now, God, who... Now the pandemic has just put them in a online church thing. And I know that some of that is a part of what just the nature of the time that we're in. And yet at the same time, I know that you made us for each other. And so whatever routine that we have broken, God, would you allow us to get back into rehearsing that routine together as a community of faith? Uh, Father, I pray... that you would show us ways of how to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I, I pray, God, even um, that the prayer of our hearts would, would be to, to push against that legal spirit that we all have. I pray that you would show us how your word points to Jesus. I pray you show us how to respond to grace as the driving force for living for you. God, we worship you. We rest and we, we rehearse. As Colossians says, we hold fast. We abide. We rest in you. Show us how to put on the new way of life that is so foreign to what we've experienced most of our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.